0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message.
1: Thanks very much, Trent. Um, I'm really glad that I don't have to stand up here and preach with a baby in my arms, but I do think that would be a good challenge to get people to learn. Um, There's a lot, lot going on there. Good morning church, my name is Chip, my real name is Ben, for those of you who think Chip's a bit of a weird name, Ben is my legal name, but uh, there are so many Bens in the world that Chip gives me a point of difference, that's nice, it's easier to remember. Anyway, it's an absolute privilege for the three of us to be here today, as Trent said, we're all from the Allgate Evening Service. Now I'll be starting us off today and our passage will be Acts chapter 8. Now I'm doing just the very beginning, so don't worry, you don't have to listen to me talk forever. I've only got Acts verse, Acts chapter 8, verse 1 to 5. That's it. That's it. Not much in there. We'll cover it really quickly. And then we'll all go on to Elliot's and Talia's. But before we get into it, uh, I'd just like to begin in prayer. Dear God, I thank you for this opportunity for us to gather here today. I thank you for the spectacular weather you've put on for us. I pray over my two preaching partners and over the congregation in general that this would be an enlightening and an empowering empowering and convicting sermon uh, and that we would all walk away feeling closer to you. In your name, Amen. Amen. So Quick recap of my background, and then we'll do a quick recap to where we've been in case you've missed any weeks. Uh, and then we'll look at the passage and I'll give you a few things and then I'll hand over to Elliot. I just like everyone being on the same page. I worked in a school, so like lesson plans, you know, we all gotta know where we're gonna end up. The other good thing about having worked in a school is I did Christian studies classes with year nine students. And if you wanna learn how to cover the Bible or scripture efficiently and in as few words as possible, do it with a Year 9 student, because you've got about 20 seconds until they stop caring. (laughs) One day, one of my students put his hand up in class and asked me a question, and I went, here we go, this will be good. He was one of those students that, when he asked a question, it was usually to try and derail the class. And he asked the question, he said, Mr Chip, that's what they called me and I loved it, he said, Mr Chip, could you not just tell us two things about the passage? Tell us what's going on, And what's the point? And I went, wow, that's really profoundly useful and good. And he meant it in terms of, let's just do those two things and go to lunch. And I took it as, awesome, let's just do those two things for the next hour and 20 minutes, and then you can go to lunch. (laughs) So today, we're going to do those two things for the next eight and a half minutes, that I still have remaining. So we're going to look at what's going on and what's the point. That's what we're going to cover. But a quick recap, we're in the book of Acts, which gives us uh, an overview of the early church. So uh, Jesus ascends at the beginning, we get the Holy Spirit coming, in particular a very handy verse to know in relation to today's service uh, is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a really good setup for today. But so much more happens. We get the beginnings of the oppression of the early church. You get the apostles being imprisoned or persecuted, told off by the Jewish authorities. And then we get to Acts chapter 7, which was preached so well by our fellow preachers last week. You get the stoning of Stephen. This is the step up. This is the elevation of persecution. We've reached a new height where death is now on the table. It's not just, you're not just going to be ostracised or talked down to or considered as less than, you could be killed for joining this early church. And then we find ourselves in chapter 8, and we'll read the beginning of that now. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. This is our passage. So we've got the beginning of the church. Stephen has been stoned to death and Saul says, great, Let's keep going. We've got one, let's get the rest of them. So he begins to go from door to door, dragging off men and women to put in prison. And this, just to be clear, they weren't being put in prison to be given a fine or, or perhaps just to keep them there for a while. Death was very truly on the cards here. This is an incredible, verse and in ju- incredible passage, and in just a few verses, there is so much contained in it. We could do an entire history lecture on just these five verses. In fact, I here carry the NIV study Bible. I don't know if any of you've got one. If you look at that, half of those pages are just notes about the cultural context, history applications, background knowledge. We could do two hours easily on that, and I'd love to. And if you'd like to hear that two hour lecture after the sermon, come find me and we'll put it on at some point. But for today, that's not our two points. As my year nine student said, what's going on? What's the point? History is important, but what's going on and what's the point is what we're here for today. So what's going on is the church, the early church, is facing its first true source of persecution. It's massive, it's wide scale, it's not just a few, it's all. It's not just Elliot because he's up the front. It's all going door to door to door to door to everyone's house and checking that you didn't believe in Christ. And if you did, he'd drag you and your wife and your family off and throw you in prison where you would potentially die. This is what's going on. The church is faced with persecution. So it raises an important question. What do we do in the face of persecution? What do we do in the face of persecution? This passage offers a very small insight, but a very clear directive. In the face of absolute persecution, the prospect of death being torn away from your society and everyone you know, what did these people do? They could have simply stopped talking about Jesus. That's all they needed to do. They could have reneged, become uh, aligned themselves with their Jewish traditions and Saul would have left them be. There was nothing else that they needed to do. All they had to do was stop talking about Christ. But instead, they went a step further. They were thrown out of the city. Some of them ran, some of them were scattered. They left and they went to foreign lands where they knew no people, They weren't accustomed with the culture. They didn't have connections. And what did they continue to do was talk about Jesus to everyone, everywhere they went. That's what they did. They saw persecution. They suffered from it. And they kept talking about Christ, even though they could have stopped the persecution by just stopping. Now, I grew up as a non-Christian, which was an interesting way to, to end up here, I'll be honest. And there's a long testimony that goes with it. But one of the things that I did in my early life was surround myself with other non-Christians. So I worked in non-Christian workplaces, I made non-Christian friends at school, everyone in my life was non-Christian. And one day, through a miraculous working, uh, God dragged me out of that, and he said, nice try, good effort, (laughs) but I've got different plans. And I became a Christian. But I was still in this setting of people who did not believe what I believed, and not just people who didn't believe it or didn't care, people who I had gathered because they actively didn't like Christianity. I was sitting there with all of my friends and a lot of my family and everybody I knew who didn't like Christianity, and I had to stand there and go, I think God's all right. (laughs) And that was a tough conversation to start. Now, I was lucky. I didn't have death on the table. I'm pretty sure no one in that group was going to kill me, but I'm fairly confident I was safe there. But that didn't mean there wasn't persecution. There was... I had to change groups of friends. I ended up having to move workplaces. I had to change the entire direction of my life in order to find some people who were Christians. I started driving half hour every day to church, which I'm still doing, what, six years later? I should really find a church closer to home. Or move, either or. Um, But this, this this was the persecution I faced. It's not the same, but it's in a similar vein. And again... I could have stopped all of that persecution by simply not talking about Jesus and sometimes that's what I did. Sometimes I would be in a situation and I went, it is easier to not say that I believe in God right now or an opportunity would come up to talk to a friend who didn't believe in God about God or offer them to come to church and I would go, no, it's easier not to. I'll feel safer. I'll get to stay where I am. I get to sit in my little bubble of safety with my friends and not challenge anything and be pretty comfy. But it always felt wrong. And it always feels wrong when I do it to this day. I'm not perfect at this. I want to make that very clear. But it's recognising the need to say, yes, I need to talk about Jesus. I need to do it when I'm being oppressed and I need to do it when things are going well. And if I'm being oppressed so much here, perhaps I need to go over here and talk about Jesus. It continues. So as my year nine would want to know, what's happening? The early church is being oppressed. They're pushed out of Jerusalem. This begins to fulfill the scriptures that they would be the witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as this begins to happen, Saul is actually influential in spreading the gospel even before he converts to Christianity. But that's a whole different sermon in itself. And then what's the point? The point is Christ. It sounds like a very year nine answer to a Christian studies question when you don't know the answer, what's the answer, say Jesus. But quite often that's the answer. (laughs) And in this case, perhaps more than any other, the answer is to keep talking about Jesus even when you're persecuted, even when things aren't going well, even when things aren't going smoothly, perhaps especially then. So let me leave you with a few questions. One, when do you find yourself in situations where you choose not to talk about Jesus? And I'm not calling anyone out for that. I don't know most of your life stories. I barely know Elliot and Talia's and I'm still struggling to figure out mine. But when you find yourself in those situations, identify them. Stop and think, why am I not choosing to talk about Jesus here? And perhaps there is a reason. But I would say if we can agree that the early church always talked about Jesus, even when persecuted out of their homeland, perhaps there isn't too many excuses that we have today to not talk about Jesus. And two, remember Scripture. Look at Scripture and Specifically, not in isolation. I've given us five verses today, five very short verses, but they are so interconnected. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is just one example of the way that this section of Scripture ties into all of Scripture. Read more, so that when you're put in those situations to talk about Jesus, you've got the things to say. Elliot?
2: Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Elliot, and it's great to be with you this morning. I was drug tested off the freeway on the way here, so I just want you... <laughs> by the police. And I just want you all to know that I'm not preaching under the influence, so that's that's confirmed. Um, yeah, hopefully. Um, but so I'm just going to read my passage uh, that I'm doing, which is going to be the next sort of part of Acts 8. So from verse 5 onwards, and then we'll get into it. So Acts 8:5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So how much would you pay to receive the power of the Spirit? Think about it. Do you have a number? Simon certainly did. Um, but let's, let's, let's just look at that passage. I'm just going to run through it. At the beginning of chapter 8, we're introduced to Philip. And this is quite important. This isn't Philip the Apostle, but instead Philip, who's the deacon, one of the seven chosen in Chapter six that you heard earlier. So, one of the seven with Stephen, who was martyred in the chapter before this. I didn't realize that for a really long time. I thought it was the apostle for, until last week. <laughs> <laughs> so, like Stephen, Philip is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's of good reputation. And he's been forced out of Jerusalem due to the persecution that Chip was telling us about. So, Philip goes to Samaria and begins spreading the gospel very successfully, it seems that the people are hungry for God. There are miracles, there are signs, and a message of truth, and it's turning Samaria upside down. And it's in the context of this upheaval of Samaria that we introduce to another character, Simon, uh, also not an apostle. Uh, This is Simon, known as Simon the sorcerer, or Simon Magus, Magus, I think, uh, which should give you a clue as to what he was up to. So he'd been in the city that Philip had just arrived in for quite a while, and he was practicing magic and amazing the people of Samaria. They even say that he was the great power of God. So he's a little bit of a rock star in the town, and he's listened to, given authority, and paid boatloads of money. But then Philip turns up. And Philip has the spirit of the living God, the creator God in him. In fact, the text uses the same adjective to describe the Samaritans' response to Philip as it does to their response to Simon. To Philip, they pay close attention, and to Simon, they pay close attention. But Philip isn't doing miracles to be called great. He's doing miracles to heal and restore the people of Samaria. He's doing them so that people call God great. So they know his love, and this stuns the people of Samaria. They come to be baptized in droves. Uh, and, And it would seem that Simon would be put off by this, right? Some guys come onto his patch, taking his little scheme. You'd think that Philip poses a threat to his significance and his income, but he's not threatened, he's excited. It says, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So Simon gets baptized. He starts following Philip around. Even the great power of God, the mighty sorcerer, is astonished by the power of God. And he wants to be near it at any cost just to experience it. So it seems. So soon after this, word reaches back to Jerusalem where the apostles are of what's been happening in Samaria and they send out Peter and John. And Peter and John are excited by this. Like the way of Jesus is already spreading to Samaria. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about right before he left. But the people haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. They'd only been baptized. So the apostles pray for the people, lay their hands on them and the Spirit comes. But it doesn't come to everyone. Simon sees the people receiving the Holy Spirit, and I imagine he gets even more excited because it turns out that he didn't follow Philip because he wanted to serve God. He wanted to learn Philip's magic. He wanted to figure out how Philip was doing the things that Philip was doing. He wanted God to serve him. And finally, you know, that's going to happen. He sees these people in Samaria receiving the Spirit. But then he sees the apostles who are laying their hands on the people, and he's over the moon. Like, he needs that ability. Imagine how much you could charge for someone to receive the Spirit of God. When we were preparing for this, Chip gave the number of $1,000. So, you yeah, know, it's $1,000 a pop. That's pretty good. Uh, so he goes to Peter, you've got to teach me how to do that. I'll pay you anything, right? What's your rate, man? Uh, and if, you, if you've read the Gospels, you know Peter can be a little intense. Uh, but here he just loses it. Um, I'll read what he says. So just imagine this in like, full ear-chopping fervor. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon's terrified, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't pray for forgiveness. He asks Peter to do it because it seems Simon never truly had a faith he was baptized, but he didn't come to know God, and he hasn't come to know Him even now. So, what does all this mean? What's the point, as Chip's student would ask me? Well, there are a few lessons you can take out of it. Like, don't try to buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I doubt any of you are going to give that a shot. The primary reason that Luke includes this story in Acts, Luke being the writer of Acts, um, is to offer a comparison between the characters of Philip and Simon. Right? Philip has just witnessed his friend Stephen, who he served with, who he knew well, be martyred, be stoned to death under false pretenses because of the gospel. Philip was just forced to leave all that he knew in Jerusalem because of the gospel and he was willing to continue to risk his life in Samaria with the help of the Spirit. Simon approached God in the complete opposite way, looking to see how he could benefit with no respect or gratitude towards God. He was told, Jesus is king, and now our sins are forgiven, and we can be in true and intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. And Simon goes, oh, that's, that's going to be good for my bank account. <laughs> But he did, he learnt, he learned that the Spirit of God does not serve you. You serve the Holy Spirit. You cannot use the gifts of the Spirit for your own gain unless God chooses you. You won't receive the gifts no matter how much you give or you serve for them. Uh, in Corinthians 12, Paul describes the gifts of the Holy Spirit as being given for the benefit of all. They're to edify and to lift up the church. They're not to edify and lift up you. They're not to edify and lift up Simon. They bring about the healing, the training, and the encouragement of the people of God. So we're not generally tempted to buy spiritual gifts, uh, but we might be tempted to apply that same selfish motive to the way that we approach serving in church, the way that we approach our God. Um, do we serve so that people are touched by the love of God, or so that people will look at us with the same close attention? That they gave Simon. You know, am I preaching right now so that you know the truth of who God is, or so that you see me up here saying all the things and just like, you know, doing that perfect pause just to let it sink in? Yeah. Would Peter tell me that I'm full of bitterness and captive to sin? I don't think he would, because the new Samaritan Christians wouldn't have had pure motives either. They'd just become Christians. You know, and even, even that was pretty scandalous at the time. You know, in the minds of the apostles, they had just come to give them the Spirit. Just a few months earlier, they would have been shocked at that. Because the Spirit of God was meant to be in the temple and only in the temple. Yet these people who just learned of who Jesus was were now filled with God's holy presence. Just as Philip was, just as Simon had been, just as all the apostles were, no different. And that's the same thing that's happened to all you here, most of the believers here. God's spirit moves where God intends, and on whom God intends And he intends for all of these normal believers to receive the Spirit. But it's not because of anything that they've given. It's not because of any money they've paid, anything they've done. No money, time, or effort makes them worthy of it. Just like the gift of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and ascension, the Spirit is the pure grace of God. And if you worry that you're not worthy of it, of course you're not but God gives anyway. So how much would you pay to receive the Spirit? It, does, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter because look at how much Jesus was willing to pay so that we would be able to receive it. Right? Don't treat His gifts as something to serve yourself, but ask where the Spirit wants you to use them to serve the people of God. Can you... Like Philip did, trust that the cost of serving God is worth it. Let me pray quickly. Father, you are good. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that helps us stand strong in persecution, helps us do your work, helps us bring healing and love and grace to the people around us, Lord. Amen. Help us to know that we're enough for that, that you see us truly and you still give. And I ask that you would speak to everyone here and let them know exactly how much you see them and how much you love them. Amen.
0: Good morning, everyone. My name's Talia. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for having us today. We're all really delighted to be here and thank you for the warm welcome you've given us. What would you consider to be spirit-filled ministry? I imagine a variety of different images will spring to mind for each of us, so I won't attempt to list off any potential attributes I would just like you to take a moment to reflect on what the key characteristics of, con- of successful ministry are to you. For the final section of today's sermon, we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 40 of Acts 8 and seeing what the story of Philip and the Ethiopian teaches us about what spirit-filled ministry looks like to God. Before I read the passage, would you please join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this word and thank you for all that you can teach us through your scripture. I pray that you will fill us with the Spirit today and with wisdom. I pray that you will give us quick minds and attentiveness to your word and to discern what you are trying to teach us today. And I pray that anything that is not of you will fall away, but that the truth will remain. Jesus' precious name, Amen. Let's read from verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Kandaki, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Isn't this a beautiful story? An intimate conversation between two strangers, which leads to a profound revelation of who Jesus is and his love for all people. It's a story which many of us might already be familiar with. And even on first impression. It might seem quite ordinary. It's not flashy, it's not shiny, yet its message and its ramifications are sincere and significant. So, today I'd like us to deeply get to know the two protagonists of Philip and the Ethiopian and to discover what God is teaching us about his character and mission through this story. We are now already familiar with some of Philip's works from the earlier parts of the chapter that Chip and Elliot have just preached on. We know that while he was not one of the original 12 disciples, he was chosen on a de- as a deacon on account of being filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. In this story, Philip is called by an angel of the Lord to leave the hubbub of evangelistic efforts in Samaria in order to travel along the desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza, a southern city near the Mediterranean coast. This seems like an unusual mission, perhaps even a wild goose chase, away from the heart of where the disciples are performing miracles and proclaiming the good news of Jesus to great effect. I imagine Philip could have felt quite intimidated, afraid, even doubtful. I certainly would. This is also not a mission which would bring Philip notoriety. No one would witness this and praise him for his good works, nor count his conversion numbers or marvel at his spirituality. But Philip is wise and full of the spirit, and he trusts that God has a good mission for him, so he is quick to obey. As he progresses along the road, he eventually comes upon the Ethiopian, who is travelling homewards in his chariot. At the Spirit's prompting, Philip eagerly runs up to the vehicle and overhears its occupant reading from a scroll the book of Isaiah. As one of the earliest believers, Philip himself has only recently been enlightened on the parallels between the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and the recent des- death and resurrection of the Messiah Jesus. So he asks the European if he understands what he is reading. How can I? unless someone explains it to me. There are various opinions regarding whether the Ethiopian was a Jew or a Gentile, but regardless of his religious status, he would certainly have been outcast from the temple in Jerusalem, where he seems to have travelled at Pentecost to worship, due to the law ascribed to eunuchs in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And even if he was a Jew, he still wasn't an Israelite, and therefore once again placed on the fringes of Jewish society. In any case, he is a man who is isolated in his pursuit of God's truth, treated as an outsider and a lowly figure in Jerusalem, despite his significant status as the Queen's treasurer in Ethiopia. He could easily have felt outside of God's love and grace, unable to ever live up to the expectation of a model Jew. Despite these obstacles though, despite his outward appearance of insufficiency, the eunuch is hungry to know God. And God sees this. God cares. He loves him so much that he chases after him, sending Philip away from the flock in Jerusalem and Samaria to find this one lost sheep and bring him home. So Philip and the Ethiopian now find themselves sitting together in the chariot, reading from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And Philip has the opportunity to share how this ancient piece of scripture points to Jesus, the Messiah, the sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant who has just bled and died on the cross to forgive all sin and to reconcile everyone to the Father, everyone from the faithful Philip to the outcast Ethiopian. He has risen in triumph over sin and death and shown that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Following his resurrection, in Luke 24, 44 to 47, Jesus explained to his disciples, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repent. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The Ethiopian is deeply moved by this revelation. It is truly extraordinary, and we can still be struck by the truth of it today. That we are all welcome into the Father's family because Jesus took our place, was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, so that by his wounds we might be healed. And the Ethiopian's response to this is a burning desire to be baptised. Indeed, he jumps out the chariot at the first sight of water and asks Philip to baptise him. I remember my pastor at Orgate, Nick, sharing this very stor- story with me when I was considering baptism a couple of years ago. I was worried that I didn't have enough knowledge of the Bible or spiritual experience to be baptised. And maybe some of you have these same worries too. But Nick reminded me of the fact that, as the Ethiopian demonstrates, baptism is the first act in response to acknowledging Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. It is just the big beginning of the journey, and it is beautiful to be baptised in that moment, knowing that we are indeed insufficient and lowly, but that Jesus alone makes us holy and righteous before the Father. At the end of the story... Philip is taken away to undertake more preaching and evangelistic missions across the coastline. In the words of theologian John Stott, the eunuch is left without the evangelist, but with the evangel, without human aid, but with the divine spirit, who not only gave him joy, but also gave him the courage and power in his own country to preach what he had himself believed. Do you remember Jesus' words from Acts 1 verse 8? but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. The Ethiopians' revolution, revelation of Jesus on the de- dusty desert road home is significant because it marks a starting point for the gospel to be shared to the ends of the earth. This message is not just for the Israelites, not just for the Jews, It's for everyone, forever. It's for the Ethiopian and his compatriots in the first century. It's also for us and our fellow Australians now. So I'd like to close by asking each of us to consider where our own heart sits. Do you find yourself resonating with the evangelist or with the eunuch? If it's the evangelist, then where is your heart at in that space? Philip shows us a beautiful humility in listening to God and submitting to his prompts. He demonstrates a heart to share God's love with everyone, no matter how unlikely, uncomfortable or humble the circumstances may seem. He understands the power of scripture to illuminate the truth of the gospel and he acts wisely in his desire to help others know Jesus. Philip is flexible and humble enough to be able to speak to the masses in Samaria yet also seek out one man and respond with truth to his questions. So I invite us to ask God to search our own hearts and to see where he can guide us in our attempts at evangelism. May we be humble and quick to obey, avoid getting caught up in shiny expressions of evangelism and the glamour of conversion numbers, and always remember that Jesus died for everyone and it is our duty to respond wisely, courageously, and in line with the Spirit. On the other hand, perhaps you feel more affinity with the Ethiopian. Maybe you feel like you don't fit the mould of the model Christian and couldn't possibly enter God's family. You might be feeling isolated and outcast from the people who should love you. Like the eunuch, are you trying to figure out what you believe without anyone beside you to offer you wisdom and truth? Are you curious and hungry, but confounded in your pursuit of God? Wherever you're at, and no matter how far away you might feel, I'd like to encourage you with the truth that God sees you, he loves you, and he will leave the rest of the flock just to bring you home. The truth is, even though we all look different on the outside, deep down we're all outcasts and sinners, and yet we're all loved by God. Jesus died for the Ethiopian, Jesus died for me, and Jesus died for you. And likewise, he will raise us all up with him in his resurrection, and we will never be alienated from the love of God again. So would you now join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that even though people look at the outward appearances, you look at our hearts you see what goes on inside of us and where we're struggling and where we're seeking to follow you. Thank you that your love and sacrifice is for all of us and that Jesus has reconciled as invited us all to be reconciled to you. Thank you that you are with us in the midst of persecution, of fear and even death. And thank you that you have a greater hope for us that transcends our circumstances. I pray that you will use us as good tools for your mission, that you will fill us with wisdom and with the Spirit and with the hunger to obey. If we tend to be shy and fearful in sharing about Jesus, I pray that you will continue to prompt us, continue to invite us to follow you, to be bold. And I pray that we will always remember that in you we do have security and truth and it is a joy to be able to share that with people around us and Father I pray that if there's anyone here who feels isolated from you and feels alone and confused I pray that you will surround them with people who can speak truth and share your love with them I pray that we would all know how much you love us and how great your sacrifice is for us and I pray that this will continue to sit with us and be with us in the coming days and weeks and that you will bear much fruit in us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.